Lord, I've been believing God that the church would really step into its moment of not just believing for experiences on Sunday morning, but that we would actually believe that we can be the church every day, everywhere. How many of you know church is not something you do? It's something you are. Hmm? You do drugs, right? Some people do church, but the reality is, and some people do church as a drug, so that's, that's a whole other story. But how many of you know that really what you do is you become something when you become a Christ follower and you be something all the time? I was in the city of Amsterdam. How many of you have ever been to Amsterdam? Hold your hand up high if you've ever been to Amsterdam. And by the way, I want to greet all of our Dutch watchers. We have, we have a, an audience of Dutch watchers that, that watch every week. And so we just want to say hi to all of our Dutch friends today. And uh, so it's incredible. Chandra helps us with our, all of our Dutch folks. Thank you so much. Um, the city of Amsterdam is one of the amazing cities in Europe. If you've never been, I would encourage you to go. It's a city full of canals and uh, beauty, a lot of ancient history that goes back many, many hundreds of years. It was a, a major player in all of the history of Europe. And I was walking through one of our occasions because I, I make passes through Amsterdam quite a bit. I'm going further east or, or even to Africa. It's one of the stop, ma major stop places. And so one of the times I was in Amsterdam, Kathy and I spent two or three days on various occasions. And um, we were walking down the street with some friends. And I passed by a painting that was outside of a museum. Guys, can you put this painting up for me? Put it on the screen. This painting was, was there that was in a, in a museum. And I thought, wow, what does that mean? And so I took a little while to inquire about this painting. And I recognized that as we were reflecting on that painting and talking about it, that this is, this is a painting that was done in 18, uh, 1685. But the event that took place actually took place in the late 1500s. But from sketches from the 1500s in 18, 1685, an artist put this together and made it a part of Dutch history. And the reason it's there, let me tell you why it's there. Remember our series is called The Witness. The reason it's there is because there was a movement that took place in Europe that actually gave birth to some of what we have today in America uh, of Christianity. And it was the movement of the Anabaptist. The Anabaptist movement was radical. It was, it was life-changing and transformative. I don't know how many of you know what it means to be an Anabaptist. Some of you say, I've never even heard of an Anabaptist. I heard of Southern Baptist and Independent Baptist, but I don't know who Anabaptists are. Anabaptist is a, it's a theological explanation of people because what happened in the Reformation of the 1500s that we all know pretty well, because of Martin Luther, there was an element of people that were touched by the gospel. And they began to believe that you don't be baptized in water until you've made a confession of faith. 
that baptism was to follow conversion. Now today, if you were to ask somebody in this room that, everybody would say, well, yes, that's true. But I would dare say that there are people that are watching today, there are people that are part of our audience that, that would say, you know what, my parents took me as an infant and I was baptized or sprinkled because it would have been the custom of those days. Prior to the Reformation, infant baptism was the way that parents got any security for salvation. And it was also the church controlled the state. And so when they, this group of people came along and decided that you could be converted and then be baptized, that baptism before conversion absolutely meant nothing. Well, they not only then stood up against the church doctrinally, but by that they stood up against the whole state, the government. And so most of the missionaries that were Anabaptist were arrested, persecuted, and many are martyred for their faith all over the act of baptism. And this painting right here shows a man, the guy in the hat that's reaching down in the water. It shows him, his name is Dirk Willem. Dirk Willem was an Anabaptist. And he had been captured and was being held in prison for his faith, for believing that to follow Christ, you surrender your life in baptism because that buries your old man and you're resurrected to newness of life. He was arrested. He was being held in the provincial prison, which was actually an old palace, an old castle. And as a part of the Reformation and a bit radical, he escaped from prison one night. He broke out because he wanted to continue to preach the gospel. And as he was fleeing, it was in the wintertime, and any of you that's been to any castles in Europe, you know that many of them were surrounded by moats that were filled with water. And the moat had frozen over, so all the river around the castle was frozen. And Willem was a, was a, a small guy, and he, he ran across the moat, was on the other side of the field, and he had gotten away to freedom. And as he was running across the river, the guard who was guarding him saw him escape and he took out after him. And he was a big guy. And about halfway across the moat, he fell in the water. He fell into the icy water, it was winter time. He could not swim and he was about to die. Willem was free. He'd escaped. But instead of running away, he turns around, comes back out on the ice, reaches down in the broken ice and picks up his captor and saves his life. When he gets the man up and out and onto the side of the, the river on the shore, the man says to him, I have to fulfill my duty as a prison guard. I got to take you in. So he ends up taking Dirk Wilhelm in. Dirk Wilhelm is held in a solitary confinement for the next three months and then he's sentenced to burn at the stake. And as they're taking him to burn him at the stake, they ask him, why did you turn back? Why'd you do it? You were free. You're free to go live your life. Do whatever, do whatever you wanted to do. 
What made you go back and rescue your captor? And he said this, he said, it was a reflex. And when it's a reflex, you have no choice. It was a reflex. You ever been to a physical with a doctor when he checked your reflexes? How many of you know as much as you try not to move, when he takes that mallet and hits you at the right place, your, your leg moves. Why? Because when it is a reflex, you have no choice. I was in a meeting following this, and a group of theologians were trying to figure out why and I don't get involved in meetings with theologians very often other than staff meetings with a couple of doctors that we have here now on staff. <laughs> I'm just a practitioner. I don't know. I, I just do the stuff. I don't know. I, I can't explain it all. But. So I was in this meeting with, with a group of, of theologians, and they were trying to come up with an answer. Listen to me closely. They were trying to come up with an answer on why would somebody like the Apostle Paul who was a, a devout Jew, so devout that he was committed to killing Christians. And he did it with the authority of, of the synagogue and the Sanhedrin. Why would somebody like the Apostle Paul, who was a murderer, be so transformed that he was willing to become a missionary, a church planner, why would a man, listen to me closely, why would a man who was born in prestige, born with privilege, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, had means, why would he subject himself to a life that would be spent over the next 30 years having been shipwrecked five times beaten with 39 lashes three times, beaten with rods, stoned, ran out of prison, ran out of cities, put in prison. Why would he do it? They were trying to figure out why would anybody, like you or I, why would we want to put our lives in a place of uncomfortableness? What would cause somebody to want to give their life to the point that they would be inconvenienced. And the funny thing is, Paul answers the question himself. And he answers it in his response to the Corinthians when he tells them about what it means to be a part of new creation. How many, how many of you in this room and all, how many of you online would say today, I am a part, I have been born again, and I'm a part of the new creation order? Hold your hand up high, wherever you are, if I'm a part of that. Paul, in his explanation in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he begins to talk about new creation and how it separates itself from all the other parts of creation. And he makes this outlandish statement in verse number 14. It's on the screen. It's my text for today. It says this, For the love of Christ constrains me. For the love of Christ 
constrains me. I think they put it up in the NIV. But if you read it in the original language, it says the love of Christ, everybody say it with me, constrains me. Say it again. Because this we judge that if one died for all, then all have died. Now, some of you have a translation that, like it's on the screen that says compels. Some have a translation that says controls. Uh, they are, they, that's okay, but it's, it's not really a true translation of what actually is in this verse. And the, the reason it's important we get the right word here, and I'll, I'll tell you that in just a minute, because if it's a really a reflex, we have no choice. And I'm so glad that when Paul wrote this, watch this, he makes this statement. He said, listen, the love of Christ constrains us. Us. Not me. Us. In other words, Paul is saying that, that this part of new creation did not just do something in me as an individual call. This part of new creation living will be in everybody that's actually been born again. He said, it's the love of Christ that now constrains us. Can I say to you that probably the greatest tragedy in America in the last 40 years has been that we've preached the gospel individualistic. We've made the New Testament about me. We even write songs about me. We come to church to get my blessing. We pray that God will bless me. When the reality is, the New Testament's not written to individuals. It's not even written in an individualistic way. The new covenant's not individualistic. God knows every one of us by name, but he knows us and wants to move us as a company of believers who act like a family. If there's anything tragic in the American church is that we have prized the institution over the family. And see, if you're, if you're part of an institution, you can come whenever you want to. If you're part of an institution, you can leave whenever you want to because you're just a member of a club. But if you're part of a family, how I many of you know I can never quit being a part of the Miller family? I may not ever join them, but I can never quit being a part of them because I'm a part of a family. Because God believes in moving us corporately. So Paul said the love of Christ constrains us. He actually says just prior to this, he says this, if I look like I'm out of my mind, it's for Christ's sake. And if I'm being normal today, it's only so I can bring you along on the journey. In other words, being over the top is pretty much what heaven is looking for. May I dare say today, am I doing okay? Can I keep going? May I dare say today that just when you think you're being too radical, you've only just begun to be the person that Christ wants you to be. Because the moment you start being who he really wants you to be, you're going to be so far out of step with what the world is that people are going to describe you in psychological terms. So you might as well go on and be the Christ follower that he called you to be and quit trying to be a cultural adapter and figure out how you can fit in. Because the love of Christ 
Christ does something to all of us. He said, the love of Christ constrains me. Now he uses that word constrains. This is, this is the reason it's important we use that word. He said, the love of Christ constrains us. Here's why. Because that word if you look it up in the dictionary, if you look it up in the Greek dictionary, I'm not going to try to impress you with Greek, but it's the word syneko. And, and that word, it, you, know, you know when you go to look in a dictionary, if you go to Webster, you go anywhere, you look up a dictionary, a word normally it's got one, two, three, four. So it's got a primary meaning, then a secondary, a third level meaning. This word, when you go to the dictionary, it's actually got three primary meanings. In other words, it means three things all at the same time. That's why Paul used it. It's the only time in the New Testament this word is used. And he uses it to describe what the love of Christ does in somebody's life. And it's not a, it's not a primary meaning and then secondary. He's saying no. Number two is just as important as number one. And number three is just as important as number two. They all are primary meanings. And here's what it is. He said number one. He said the word means this. It means to force movement in an unnatural way where you're being put in a tight space and you're forced through something yeah have you ever uh, have you ever taken a, a water hose and clamped down on it to where you take the flow of the water and so tighten it down that it becomes much more forceful that's the word Seneco. it literally means it's being forced something is forcing movement and motion that increases and release power second thing it means is this he said it also means that it has the ability to be like a fortress around you it keeps you from something it's just as powerful moving you and it's just as powerful stopping you wow that's a paradox how can you have something in your life that'll move you and at the same time will stop you and the third way it's used is this, is that it's a word that describes something that's been hemmed in or something that stays in place. How many of you know men in the room? How many of you know when they hem your trousers, they take a part of the bottom, they turn it up and they put a hem in it so it stays in place. It doesn't drag the ground. So what it literally means is it holds it in place. It's held in place. So watch this. Paul said this word forces you stops you and keeps you and he said if you want to know what made me go from being a man of privilege a man of reputation a man who had the world by the tail a man who was studying in the greatest universities of my day and be willing to put my life out there to the point that I became beaten and rejected and criticized and mocked if you want to know what made me do that he said I want you to know what my motivation was my motivation was the love of Christ the love of Christ Ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. When you recognize, I feel the, I feel the presence of God is going to speak to somebody in this room right now. When you really know what he did on the cross, 
when you really know what he did in the grave and when you really know what he did through the resurrection it won't be what you think about what he did I'm not talking about what somebody told you that he did but when you have really encountered the love that transforms your life to the point you are no longer the same person but you really are a new creation and all things have passed away you will find out that you will be moved you cannot remain the same I'm persuaded. I'm going to get really bold today. I'm persuaded because I feel like preaching to the world. I'm persuaded today that much of what goes on in America, people have never even really been born again. We've joined churches. We've prayed prayers. But we've never experienced new creation. Because if we ever experience new creation, you can never truly remain like you were. You say, that's a judgmental statement. No, that's a Bible statement. Paul said this, I was a murderer. I was an ungodly man. I didn't care for Christians. In fact, I wanted to crucify and kill them. But something got down on the inside of my life that so transformed not only how I felt, but how I think, how I moved, how I acted, and how I behaved. And it was the love of Christ. So here's what Paul said. First of all, the love of Christ compels action. It compels action. When I experience the love of Christ, it forces movement. When I really gave my life completely to Christ, I wanted everybody to know. I know people that say they get born again and don't even want to tell their family. If I was dead and came back to life, I would want everybody to know I was a dead man and I came back to life. If I really was blind and now I see, do you think I'd keep that to myself? No, because the love I had experienced would compel me to action. I've spent 40 years of ministry, 42 years of ministry, listening to people wished somehow God would use them. Praying God would somehow give them an assignment. Send me somewhere. Let me, get, let, me, let me give you the Bible's interpretation of your life. Here's the Bible's instructions. You go until you receive a no. Most Christians begin their life with no and pray that God gives them a go. The Bible begins with a go until I tell you no. We say things like this, I'm, I'm waiting on the Lord to show me. It's as if somehow God's not yet made up his mind. Or rather yet, you got a group of Christians who say, I'm waiting on God as if he's trying to catch up to how advanced we are. 
But the truth of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, he's already given us the instruction. And the instruction is, I want you to go into all the world. I want you to share this love with everybody you see. I want you to release the life that I've given to you everywhere you go. I don't want you to hide it. Don't put it under a bushel. You cannot set a, uh, you cannot take a light and hide it. You can't take a city and set it on a hill and cause it to be hidden. I don't want you to hide. I don't want you to be secret saints. I don't want you to say, well, I'm afraid I'll offend somebody. The gospel is always going to be offensive. It's a stumbling block to some. It's an avenue to life to others. You say, well, I'm afraid they'll judge me. Well, guess what? You're being judged anyway. So you might as well go on and do what the Bible says. The love of Christ compels me. It pushes me to act. How many of you, how many of you grew up in the days of, of testimony meetings? Anybody in the room grew up in the day? If you have never lived through a testimony meeting, you have never lived. I remember testimony meetings on Wednesday night. Yeah, come on, you remember the way they were popcorn testimony meetings, everybody in the audience. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You just sort of popped up everywhere. And we had, we had this one lady every week, she popped up with the same testimony. I, I could give her testimony better than she could. Her name was Dorothy. She'd pop up and she'd go on and on and on and on. And finally, actually one day my daddy, my dad from the platform who was leading the service that day said to her, he said, Sister Painter, would you please turn loose of the spoon? The soup's getting cold. Would you let somebody else have a taste of whatever it is that you're doing? And, and she'd get up and every week her testimony would be the same thing. I've been living close to Jesus for a lot of years. I've been living close to Jesus for lots of years. And I sat there as a teenager and I thought, there's no evidence that anybody around you has ever changed because of your closeness to Jesus. Including people in your own house. See, what I realized is that this word, Seneca, it literally means that you get forced into something, and when you do, it releases power on the other end. How many of you know, here, what, hold, get the camera close to me. I want a close-up. Close. Come on, can you get any closer? Is that close we can get? There you go, close-up right here. See here? This here. I want, I want everybody to see. This is close to Jesus. This is even really close to Jesus. But it releases nothing. I could have the ability on the other end to light this auditorium up because, but I won't do it if I'm close. But when I get connected, to the love of Christ that has ransomed and redeemed and rescued my life. How many of you know whatever's on the other end of this is going to sense a surge of power? Prison doors are going to open. Afflictions are going to be broken. Depression is going to go. Not because I'm close, but because I plugged in to the love of Christ. Come on, somebody shout hallelujah. Bishop, I don't know if I have what it takes. Look at this passage. It's in Judges chapter 6. Anybody remember a man named Gideon? 
Gideon is the Pee Wee Herman of the Old Testament, right? I mean, he is Mr. Scared of Everything. And he's got a bad, he's got a bad self-image complex. I mean, he's the one that said, I'm the least of the least of the least. I mean, he, 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 had, not been to a, he had not been to a self-help program anywhere. And in Judges chapter 6, verse number 12, it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said, Watch this. The Lord's with you. How many of you know that's not like a bad statement? Come on, huh? The Lord's with you, mighty warrior. Here's Gideon's response. Uh, Pardon me, my Lord. Gideon replied. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all of his wonders that our ancestor told us about? Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hands of the Midianites. Anybody in here, watch this. Anybody in here, God's like saying, I'm with you. Dream the impossible dream. Go for it. Dare to risk. Speak to your co-worker. And we're going, uh, oh, par- pardon me, Holy Ghost, but... I don't really know. I can't even name all the 66 books of the Bible. So I don't really want to get into a discussion because they may ask me a question I don't have an answer for. And if God was really strong, then why would all this stuff be going on in America right now? And why would we be having a pandemic? And why would we be having... And we just got all these questions. If God was really here, why is all this stuff going on? And the Lord turned to him and said... If you write in your Bible, you ought to underline this verse. Go in the strength you have. Quit saying you don't have anything. You got something. Quit saying, well, I don't know if I got what it takes. You got something. He said, Gideon, you don't have to have everything. You don't even have to understand it all. You don't have to have a PhD. You don't have to attend four different conferences to find out how to go. What you got to do is take what you got and begin to put it to work because the love of Christ will automatically compel you to action. That's what happened to Peter and John on the way to the temple that day after receiving the Holy Spirit. They're walking up to the temple to pray, and there's a man who's crippled, and he's begging for coins, and Peter looks at him and says, look at us silver and gold we don't have I can't give you what you're asking for but I can give you what you need in the name of Jesus such as I have give I unto you rise up and walk and immediately the man is made whole maybe the church needs to quit trying to be on television programs answering all the social questions of the day and we just need to give what we have maybe we need to give our love away and give our compassion away and give our forgiveness away and give our empathy away such as we have I give to you in the name of the Lord and immediately the man's made whole go in the strength that you have listen to me loved ones the need is the call Second thing it is, it says this. He said, this love, it forces me 
and keeps me from things. Wow. Watch this. He said, the same force that pushes me to go keeps me from certain things. How many of you know that when, how many married people in here? Everybody's married. Hold your hand up. I mean, if you're happily married, hold your hand up. I, yeah, there you go. How many of you know when you're married, if you're in covenant with somebody, I don't not cheat on my wife just because I might get caught. You don't cheat because you love. I had three amens. It's not the fear of being caught. It's the depth of love that keeps me pure. The truth is, I don't want to destroy my testimony of Jesus because of my love for him. Therefore, my love for Christ keeps me from things that don't represent him well. And don't reflect on him well. I shared with somebody just this past week. I, they, they were having an issue because how many of you know right now we don't have to guard our heart. You got to guard your fingers because we got a thing called social media. And I see people saying things on Facebook who are Christ followers that I want to go. I'm not sure which Christ you're following. Because when you start using curse words that you wouldn't say to somebody's face, but you'll put them on Facebook. I want to know if Jesus looked at your social media, would he say, that reflects me? Or does that reflect your opinion or your political persuasion? Because the truth of the matter is, we can never be witnesses if we keep witnessing to ourselves. Because you know what? Tony is no different than Fred and Bob and Billy and anybody else. But when I have Christ living in me and the love of Christ has consumed my life, Paul said, here's what happens. He said, I don't tell people off, not because I can't. It's because love holds me in check. I didn't get drunk because I couldn't. I didn't because love held me in check. Am I doing all right? See, we used to use legalism to keep people in check. We had church rules and church laws. I remember when I, when I joined the church, you had to sign a little card. And on the back of the card, it asked if you were a member of a secret society. They asked if you went to the theater, went to movies. If you went to movies, you couldn't, the, the deacons wouldn't pass you. If you drank alcohol, you had, you had to confess. You had to say it all. And if you, by, by God, if you messed up on that card and lied, then you were doubly going to hell. You would be in hell for two lifetimes. You'd be in hell for eternity, and then if something started over, you'd start in hell. So we had to tell everything. Why? Because we wanted the witness of the church to be pure. So our membership was 
sort of small because nobody signed the cards. Hmm? But one day it hit me, we keep trying to put a muzzle on bulldogs. I can tell it because when I walk by, they still growl. They just can't bite. But if you ever took the church rules off of them, they could bite bad. See, listen, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to help you today as your pastor. The truth of the matter is we can never put enough rules on you to make you love. I can't put enough boundaries on you to make you fall in love with Jesus. But if I fall in love with Jesus, it won't be hard for you to put boundaries on your own life because the love of Christ will constrain you. It'll hold you in check. You'll say, I'm so in love with Jesus. I don't want to reflect bad on who he is. When I, when I was a teenager, there were things in my life. Listen, I didn't live for Jesus all the time, but I so loved my dad and my mom. I didn't want it to reflect on them bad. So there's certain things I'd say, no, I'm not going to do that because I didn't want my dad to look like an idiot. I feel really good right now. And I wonder how many of us, our life would change if the love of Christ really constrained us to the point that as we walk through our day and wanted to do some things that are not very reflective of who Christ is, the love would check us and say, whoop, hold on a minute, that, that's not what the love of Christ is like. And your love for him should be so strong that he doesn't have to come down and put boundaries around you and lock you up with legalism because love is stronger than law. Because love will always keep you no matter where you are. Because see, if you're only held in place by law, then when you get away from the law keeper, you'll act yourself in the reality of who you are. But when you're truly in love, nobody has to be present or absent. You do it out of a heart of love. And Paul said, what keeps me in check is the love of Christ. I preserve my witness. Can I give you something that I know is going to blow your mind? The advancement of Christianity, according to this Bible, always hinges on behavior, not belief. The advancement, the way the gospel advances is not through ideology. Jesus said, the way the world will know that you're mine is because of how you behave towards one another. Not because you got the right doctrinal statement, but the way you behave towards one another is the way the world's going to know that you're mine. And lastly, Paul said, this love of Christ constrains me because it holds me in place. It hymns me and keeps me to what it is that Christ has called me to. That's number three. Make sure you write it down. It forces me into place. It holds me in place. The love of Christ constrains me. 
Do you know what the love of Christ will do for you? The love of Christ will keep you in the love of God. The love of Christ will keep you in hope. The love of Christ will keep you in the house of God. The love of Christ will keep you in the purposes of God. Somebody said to me, why, why do you do what you do? Why, why do you do at your age? Why do you keep doing and going? And, and you know what? I look inside of me and the only thing I know is I know how far he reached to pick me up. And I realize how much he's loved me. I can't help but want to tell the whole world of what he did in my life. I want to help other people get there. There's not a retirement to that. When I pass through our city and I look at homelessness, which is really on the rise. You can't stop in a street corner, hardly in Oklahoma City anymore. If somebody's not needing something. When I, when, I, when I listen to the struggle of our parents and single parents trying to raise children and educate them and take care of all the details, my own grandchildren when I sat like I did this week with our friends who are here from other nations who are living here because they were so disadvantaged where they were and they came here having heard of the American dream and they get here and they're treated less than human because they don't have advocates I called a shop today, this week in the city for a man who needed something who's, who has language barriers. The Lord spoke to me and said, I want you to help him put tires on his car. Because I looked at his car and his tires were, were, were bald. And I called the shop, spoke to the manager two or three hours before he got there. I said, he's coming. When he gets there, I, I, I shop there all the time. When he gets there, take care of this and I'm going to pay for it. Call me, I'll give you a credit card. And when he gets there, because he's from another place, has language barriers, they keep him for half an hour. said, I don't know anything about what you're talking about. I think you're trying to work me. And I don't know if you've ever been mad. I really think it's wrong to burn buildings down. I'm thinking I told you but because nobody's there with him as an advocate so I had to go and make sure these things were taken care of I said God in heaven don't let us be that kind of people when I watch the scales of justice be stepped on to give weight to people who have friends in high places and those that don't have any friends get full sentences thrown at them. I want to say, 
Lord, hem me in. Don't, don't let me get away from my call to be a reformer and my call to be an advocate for the gospel and my call to give what Jesus would give to our world. When right here in Oklahoma City, we get reports monthly of 12 and 13 and 15 and 18-year-old girls who are being picked up, taken through trucks and other means to be trafficked all over the world for sex trade. And there's more people involved in sex trade today than even hardly was involved in the trade, the, sec, the, the slave trade of the 1800s. And nothing is said because it benefits rich people. When millions of women find themselves with an unwanted pregnancy, and the only thing the church can offer them, it appears, is judgment if they get an abortion. That's not an answer. Do I believe abortion is wrong? Let me go on record so everybody understands that I don't think taking the life of a child in a womb, and it is a child, is ever permissible. But do I believe in the body of Christ there are more answers than that? Do you realize in America there are 300,000 orphans? 300,000 that nobody wants. Watch our, watch our news once a week. They come on at the end of the news and show pictures of kids right here in Oklahoma City that stand there and I, 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 have to, I, I, I weep. Kathy and I look at each other and weep. When a 12-year-old comes on and says, nobody's wanted me since I was four. I just want a happy home. And I think there are 310,000 churches in America. If every church just took one orphan, we could eliminate the orphan problem. The love of Christ constrains me until something moves you. Until you're angry at something, you'll never be a deliverer for anything. Moses couldn't stand watching an Israelite be beat by an Egyptian. sometimes we believe that anger is always evil the Bible doesn't say that the Bible says that there is an anger that's righteous that doesn't involve sin because there can never be anger if level unless love is present righteous anger can never be activated unless love is present you gotta hate what's happening to other people 
you got to hate slavery before you'll ever be an abolitionist. I ain't got no help. You're going to have to hate addiction before you'll ever care for an addict. You're going to have to hate sickness before you'll ever pray in faith for somebody to be healed. T.L. Osmond looked at me one day and pointed his little bony fingers at me and he said, until you hate what Satan is doing to somebody's life, God will never use you to deliver them because his love drives you to hate the control that Satan has over their life. Paul said, the love of Christ constrains me. Let me ask you a question today. What is it that's pushing you? If it's recognition, when the recognition stops, you'll stop. with the applause of people is that if you live for it you die without it Paul said I don't care he didn't know they were going to be writing history books about him he just said the love of Christ has tightened my hose up and is forcing me and every time I'm being seduced to something that's not like him I don't think about church rules I think about how much he loves me and how much I love him I don't want my testimony ruined I don't want to tarnish that relationship so it's my love for him it keeps me pure and he said if you want to know why you want to know why Paul did this all the way to a martyr's block because he said I found something found me the old songwriter said when he reached down his hand for me when he reached way down for me I was lost I was undone. I was without God or His Son. But He reached down for me. My question today to you is who are you reaching for? Jesus, I'm asking you all over this room today you'll speak to us Holy Spirit 
in the quietness of this moment, may the love of Christ constrain us. somebody telling me you did a great sermon and this week I had a I had a man who works at my house regularly does a lot of stuff for us the yard he has a yard company and he 
And he stood in my driveway and I was talking to him about church and about Jesus and about his life. And he said, do you know what he said to me? He also does business for a businessman in our church here. That's in our church. And he said to me, he called him by name. He said, you know, Mr. So-and-so, he said, he is a good man. He said, I never thought about church because where I came from in Guatemala, it was not a part of our family. It was, we were all Catholic. He said, but he's a good man. And I thought if I can be a man like that, then maybe I need to find out. See, when you leave this building, my sermon time ends, but it actually really begins when you leave these, these premises. Whatever I preach today really begins when you leave here. Because thousands and thousands of people will not come listen to me preach, but they will watch your life. They know what motivates you, what compels you, what keeps you, what anchors you. And I pray that what they'll see in all of us is that it's the love of Christ, because that's the new creation order. But before we leave today, I just want to pray for people all over this room. See, you know what? Being in church today is this right here. That's being close to Jesus. There's a lot of people that went to church all their life and never knew Jesus because they never did this right here. They never plugged into the love of God. I'm going to count to three in just a moment. When I do, I believe there are people in this room today who say, Bishop, I don't want to be here anymore. I'm ready to make a choice. I want Jesus to live in my life completely, totally, fully. When I realize that I can't save myself, all of my accolades will never cause me to be righteous. Only Christ can save me. I just want to pray for you. I want to pray a simple prayer with you. But listen to me. Salvation is free. But it'll cost you everything. Because what you give up is the right to live by your own power. And you choose to live by His. You choose to live by His life when I get to three all over this room today if you're here and you say Bishop I don't know Christ if I if I was to die today heaven's not my home I don't know I'm I hope so I wish so I'm in church I'm close maybe today I just need to go on and make the decision I'm I'm plugging in if you're online today I want you to get ready to respond when I get to three I just want you to lift your hand high I don't want anything from you I'm just gonna pray with you be bold. I prayed for you already. I, I stood behind this stage today in worship and I said, God, 
Would you please speak to people all over this room? When I get to three, lift your hand high. One, two, three. Hands go up across the auditorium. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Who else? Anybody else hold your hand up high? Anybody else? Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. God bless you. Thank you. Those of you online, thank you. Thank you. Church, would you agree with me in prayer right now? Would you do something and let's agree in prayer? Father, in the name of Jesus, I just pray for people that lifted their hands all across this auditorium. I thank you today, Holy Spirit, that you're working in their life and that the love of Christ is going to reach for them. Thank you that just like you reached for me and apprehended my life, I thank you that you're reaching for them so they can become a part of who you are. Today, I thank you that death ends and life begins. I thank you that the blindness ends and sight begins. I thank you today that you're going to live in them in a big way. And I thank you for it. Pray this prayer with me out loud. Everybody all over the building say, Jesus, Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God. I believe you're the Son of God. I believe you died for my sins. I believe you died for my sins. I believe you're alive today. I believe you're alive today. I believe that your love, I believe that your love is reaching after me. Is reaching after to me. apprehend me. To apprehend me. And today, and today, I turn my life. I turn my life completely, completely, and totally over to you. Totally over to you. And right now, and right now, forgive me of my sin. Forgive me of my sin. Come into my heart. Come into my heart. Be my Lord and Savior. Be my Lord and Savior. I thank you for it. I thank you for in it. Jesus in name. Jesus name. Amen. amen. And amen. Come on church, would you give the Lord a Maybe you prayed that prayer with Bishop today. Uh, receiving Christ into your heart and if so, congratulations. We know that God is going to change your life forever. It's through the power of Jesus that we can be sons of God. If you prayed that prayer today, everything changes from this moment forward. You do not have to be the same person. He has come to live in you, and He is going to give you a life that you could have never imagined, one that is full of love and joy and peace and grace. He is a good Father, and He enjoys the relationship with you. If today you prayed that prayer for the first time, let us know right there in the chat, on Facebook, on YouTube, or on our website, on any of those platforms. Let us know that you prayed that prayer. We want to pray with you even further. We want to see God really radically transform your life. If you are in the Oklahoma City area, and you prayed that prayer. We want to see you here on campus at our church. Come up and introduce yourself. Let, let one of us meet you. Uh, let us get on this journey with you to becoming more and more like Christ. And for all the rest of you who may have prayed today for God just to, to, to just strengthen your life, to give you new grace, to give you new power, to give you uh, an ability to overcome, maybe to impact your family, maybe to impact your uh, resources, whatever it is that you're believing God for, we believe with you. And we pray today that God... Uh, he gives you everything that you need. His riches are good, and they're abundant in every way. I'm going to pray with you today, and then we're going to go, and we'll see you back next week. But as I pray this blessing today, we just speak life over you. We believe that good things are going to happen. Father, we just thank you today for all those that were part of this service. God, we thank you for, for the transformation that you've uh, created in our lives already today. God, we thank you that as Bishop used that illustration of, of plugging into the power of God, that we're doing that. Father, that we are pushing into, into God, that we're plugging in, getting the power, the grace that we need to move forward, God. So I just pray that over every individual today that was part of this service. God, we just speak life and grace. We speak blessing over the week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.